The book of Obadiah, and we'll begin in verse number 1. The Word of God says, The vision of Obadiah, Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers came by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the great gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the hidden thing? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed, to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Let's read verse number 6 once more. The Word of God says, How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the privilege it is to be in Your house. Now, God, I'm asking You this morning that Your Spirit would have liberty and free reign to move and to work in hearts this morning. God, that Your will would be accomplished in our church life. Lord, You know each and every person that's here this morning. Lord, You knew that they'd be here. You knew the message that would be preached, and You know what we have need of. So we're trusting Lord, that you have orchestrated and appointed what's going to take place in the next few moments. God, we ask that you would stir the souls and the hearts of men. Lord, that your uh, will would be accomplished and that, Father, if there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, they'd come to know your Son as their Savior. If there's any that are discouraged, they'd be encouraged, Lord. Any that are lifted up in pride, that they'd be abased, but that in all things your Son, Jesus Christ, would receive glory and honor from us this morning. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, some of you may be wondering, why the book of Obadiah this morning? We've been studying through the Minor Prophets on Monday nights, and uh, we're on the home stretch, amen? We're going to meet uh, this Monday night for the second part of Zechariah, and then I I think we may take a week off. Uh, Memorial Day will be the following Monday, and then we're going to finish up with the book of Malachi. But as you study through the Minor Prophets, you begin to understand them both in their prophetic application and in their practical application. And you know, every portion of the Word of God has several different applications that can be made of it. There's a historical application. In other words, the book of Obadiah is a prophecy concerning what the Lord would do to the nation of Edom. Then there is a prophetic application, and certainly uh, in the end times there are going to be people that are going to rise up, and especially as you come to the end of the book of Obadiah, you see what God is going to do to the nations that rise up against Israel. Then there is a practical application of the book of Obadiah. What can I understand 
When I see and look at what God did to the nation of Edom, what does that tell me about my line? Well, as we read those nine verses, you'll find that a name popped up a couple times, and you may have made note of it, because usually most uh, Christians, when they read a book like the book of Obadiah, a lot of the names they don't understand, they don't know, they, a lot of folks don't know what Edom is. Edom was a nation uh, to the southeast of, of uh, Israel. They don't know what the name Teman is in verse number 9. Teman was one of their capital cities. But there's probably a name that jumped out at you that you said, hey, I know who that is. And it's the name Esau. In verse number 6, the Bible says, How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? In verse 9, the Bible says that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Now, we know Esau in the Word of God is the brother of Jacob. In fact, most every time that you hear the name Esau, you're going to hear it mentioned with the name Jacob. Twin brothers that were born, uh, the uh, children of Isaac and of Rebekah. We know the story, most of us do anyways, about how that uh, Esau sold uh, his birthright to his brother uh, for uh, just a, a bowl of soup for all practical intents and purposes. Uh, you may have heard the story about how as they grow up and they come to a later period in their life, how that uh, Jacob stole the blessing uh, from uh, Esau. And the Bible tells us, we're going to see it here in a moment, that Esau, through his unbelief and through his rejection of God, had forfeited that blessing. Uh, but nevertheless, Jacob did go about sort of devious means to procure that blessing and to take that for himself. We know the story of how that Jacob, uh, on the night that uh, God met him and wrestled with him, he was running from Esau. He was afraid that his brother Esau was going to kill him. When they had seen each other many, many years before, uh, Esau wanted to kill his brother Jacob because he had stole the blessing. Jacob thought that Esau was going to make good on that promise. And so Jacob uh, splits his family and splits his, his wealth into two different caravans. And uh, he says, that way, if Esau falls on one of them, they'll still be half of my wealth, and one of my wives will still be alive. And so we're sort of familiar, I think most folks are, with who Esau is. But there's a commentary given upon him in the New Testament. Esau is not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament except one place. And I want you to hear what God says about Esau. Now, Jacob's mentioned many, many times, but Esau's only mentioned once. And I think when we read this about Esau, we get a key to understanding the book of Obadiah. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. The Word of God says, "...looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God..." Let me pause there and, and go ahead and just root out some doctrinal issues there. You notice that the Bible does not say, "...lest the grace of God fail any man." The grace of God never fails any man. The grace of God is sufficient. The Lord looked at Paul and said, My grace is sufficient for thee. So it's not talking about losing your salvation. It's not saying the grace of God is going to fail you. But what it's saying is you don't live up to the way that the grace of God has treated you. In other words, God treated you with grace, but we don't want to treat other people with grace sometimes. We don't want to practice what Paul uh, told us to practice when he said uh, that word, uh, uh, to whom, he said, To whom I forgave anything, I forgave it in the person of Jesus Christ. We're to forgive others because God, for Christ Jesus' sake, has forgiven us. And so we're not talking about here about losing your salvation. And then it goes on to explain a little clearer. It says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, 
he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. The Bible says this about Esau, that he was a profane person. He was a fornicator. But the Bible also says that in his life, a root of bitterness was planted. It's interesting when you study what took place when Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. If you were to read that passage, God goes out of His way to say something on purpose. Now, everything in your Bible is on purpose, but sometimes you can tell God's just going way out of His way to say something in particular. And it says this, that when Esau learned that Jacob had stole the blessing, that he cried with an exceeding bitter cry. At that moment and at that place in Esau's life, the Bible says that a root of bitterness was planted. The Edomites and the nation of Edom are the descendants of Esau. So when we read about the book of Obadiah, what we're really reading is the history, or we're reading the last chapter in the story of the descendants of Esau. We're reading what took place in the lives of those that were born in his family. Now, we know, if you've studied your Bible, then you know that the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob. And the whole theme of the book of Obadiah is that God is going to judge the Edomites because of the way that they have treated the Israelites. When Babylon, when the Babylonians came in and uh, destroyed the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin and sacked the city of Jerusalem, did you know, and if you read through the book of Obadiah, it's not very long, you ought to be able to, uh, you'll find some of these things are mentioned here. Did you know that the Edomites stood back and rejoiced at the plight and the calamity of the Israelites? They stood back and said, boy, those Israelites really got what was coming to them. Do you know it even goes a step further that whenever the Babylonian troops were rushing into the city and were ransacking and pillaging houses, that the Edomites jumped in and joined in with them. And their brethren, mind you, I mean, they are brothers distantly related. And they ran through and stole the things that belonged to the Israelites that had been killed or enslaved. What a terrible thing. But did you know that it even goes a little further? In fact, I'll read it for you if I can find it here because you've got your Bible in front of you. Uh, Listen to what it says in verse 14. God's talking to the Edomites and He says, Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Do you know what the Edomites did? Their anger and their hatred of Israelites went so deep that whenever the Israelites were trying to flee from the city of Jerusalem, when the Bible says the crossway there, you know what that means? It means the crossroads, the place where two roads intersected. And can I just give you a story? One of the commentators put it this way, and and I think it's good sometimes to get a picture in our mind of what's taking place. Imagine, if you will, the fires are raging in Jerusalem. Uh, The shouts of of the battle cry are ringing loud. You can hear the clanging and clashing of swords and of shields. And a little mother, maybe her husband, has died in the battle that's ensuing. She scoops up her children. She makes a way of escape, maybe through a wall that's been breached in the city. And she runs out of the city, and in terror she thinks to herself, if I can just get away from the city, if I can just get out to the wilderness, out to the woods... Maybe I can be safe. She runs and flees with her children in her arms, fearing every moment for the blow that might be stricken to her to end her life and her children. Then all of a sudden, she makes a little distance. She thinks to herself, I'm safe. The cries and the prayers begin to drown out in the distance. And all of a sudden, the quiet of nature begins to sink in. 
She thinks to herself, I've escaped. I've managed. I'm in safety now. She looks up at a place where two roads meet and she sees a band of people standing there thinking for a moment that they may offer her asylum. She runs with all of her energy. And who is it but Edomites? And they clap shackles on her hands and her wrist. And they say, you're not going to escape. You're going back to Babylon. You're going back to the warfare. The Edomites literally stood in the way to catch those that were trying to flee from the battle, the Israelites that were trying to save their lives. What a horrendous thing. What a terrible thing. Could you have imagined what would have happened to those if maybe in the day that death camps were beginning to be set up in Poland and in places in Eastern Europe, you can imagine how we would treat someone that had been active in capturing the Jews and leading them off to places like Auschwitz. Such were the Edomites. They weren't getting money for it. They weren't getting treasure for it. They weren't getting power for it. They were doing it for the sheer enjoyment of seeing Israelites destroyed. It's a picture that God paints of the Edomites. Now, here's the thought I want to give to you this morning, and I want to give you a few short truths. I want to say a word about when bitterness blooms. You see, the root of bitterness that had begun in the life of Esau, when we read the book of Obadiah, we're seeing the flowers and the trees blooming from that root of bitterness. We don't talk a lot about bitterness. None of us really like to think about bitterness. We don't mind talking about bitterness when someone's bitter at us. But when we've got some bitterness, we don't really like to think about it. The Edomites didn't like to acknowledge it as bitterness. They probably had all the reasons in the world, you know. We always have good reasons, don't we? But when God shines the light of Scripture upon their heart, He says, I find in you hate and malice and rage and bitterness. And so I want us to look at a few things this morning in this passage about what bitterness can do in our lives and some things that it robs us of. We've read the passages, and I'm not going to read all of them over to you, but I want you to look with me at verse number 1. And just by way of introduction, I want you to notice a few things in the way that the Lord says some things. The Bible says, "...the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom." So God speaks to Obadiah. And he says, Obadiah, this is what I have to say about Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Edom was a very interesting nation. Top, you know, the, the topography of it, the culture of it, the, the economy of it. You can see it's sort of evoked in the language that's spoken about being high in the clefts of the rock and, and, and making your nest like, uh, making your place of security like an eagle's nest. If you were to see the ground, and God prophesied this concerning Esau and his inheritance and where his people would wind up. But if you were to go to the remains of Edom, you would find a place that is situated in the red stained clay hills of the ancient city of Petra. That was one of their ancient cities. Carved out of pure rock. It was a place, and, and this is kind of the illustration I told when we talked through Obadiah. How many of you like to watch westerns? I'll just tell you, in this preacher's opinion, it's going to help you to raise your hand, not hurt you. And you watch westerns sometimes, and you've seen it. When they're, when they're making their way to hide out, uh, you know, to the bandits' hideout. You've seen it before. I know you have. And there they are riding through some deep cavern, riding through these narrow pathways where they know that Johnny Law, you know, he can't get to them, right? 
that was sort of how that Edom was. They were situated high above on the rocks. They were almost impenetrable because some of the passageways that you would have to go through, literally only maybe two horses could ride side by side down that passageway. And so a massive advancing army couldn't even get to the nation of Edom. They had to come two by two. And they put a lot of stock in that. They didn't really have to uh, pay a lot of tributary. They didn't really have to go fight a lot of wars. They were holed up in their mountain hideout and no one could get to them. They also operated in a day when you had people like Assyria on the war path, people like Babylon on the war path. And so in order to sort of stem the, the, the odds in their favor and, and, and in order to sort of give them a better chance, they would go and with some of the smaller nations, they would make confederacies and alliances with them to ensure that they were safe there. And the Lord begins by saying this, Edom, I want, or Obadiah, I want you to go to Edom and tell them that you've heard a rumor from me. Isn't that interesting language? We think of a rumor as a bad thing. In fact, we sort of joked about it a little bit there at the beginning of the service. But what the Lord is saying is this. When we speak of a rumor, we're speaking... You know the appeal of a rumor? Is the notion that you know something that nobody else knows. That's why we like a good rumor, right? We know something that nobody else knows. And the Lord says to Obadiah, I want you to go to Edom and tell them this. The Lord knows something that nobody else knows about them and their future. Can I say this, that first off, God knows the existence of bitterness. Isn't it interesting that when God speaks about bitterness, He calls it a root of bitterness. He doesn't say it's a tree of bitterness or a vine of bitterness. He says it's a root of bitterness. If you were to look at the life of Jacob and Esau, do you know you'll find at least on two separate occasions times when it seemed as though everything was okay? Did you know that when their father Isaac died, the boys reconciled at least long enough to bury their father? Most would look at that and say, well, sure, they buried the hatchet in the burial ground of their daddy. They've made everything okay, but we find out later that everything wasn't okay. And in fact, the very night that we spoke of at Peniel, when Joseph or when Jacob wrestles with God and he was so fearful that Esau was going to kill him, did you know that when Jacob finally comes face to face with Esau, that Esau grabs him and hugs him, kisses his neck, tells him how much he loves him. You see, if you were to look at the actions of Esau, you'd never imagine there was bitterness there. When we think of someone that's bitter, man, we think of somebody, I mean, they just, they, they live in their house, they never look out the window, they never talk to anybody, they've unplugged the phone, uh, they, they've done away with any kind of communication, they're mad at the world, and they don't want anyone to see them or to talk to them. I understand that bitterness certainly can get to that place, but did you know that you don't have to be locked away like a hermit in the hills? for there to be bitterness in your heart. God knows of the existence of their bitterness. But I want you to notice number two. He knows the extent of their bitterness. The rumor that the Lord tells Obadiah, I might say Elbadiah and Obadiah and anything this morning. We're dealing with, with Obadiah and Edom and Esau. Now, you say that five times fast. But the, the rumor is this. The Lord says this. Tell the Edomites that there's an ambassador there's somebody within this group of confederates with them that's going around and is beginning to turn the tide against them. In other words, the Lord says this, I know just how far your bitterness has betrayed you. Can I tell you something intrinsic about bitterness? Anybody that's bitter, most of the time they're not aware how bitter they are. 
They know that they're bitter most of the time, but they just don't realize how bitter they are. The Lord knows the extent of our bitterness. And then let me give you, just by way of introduction, one final thing. God knows the end of our bitterness. You know what the rumor was? He said, go tell them that there's an ambassador going around to the Confederates. And what he's, what's he saying? He's saying, let us rise up against her in battle. This battle, this betrayal that was about to take place would mean the end of the Edomites. And God says this, I know where your bitterness will take you. God knows. Let me say that if we're ever going to get help from the Lord, we've got to surrender and submit ourselves and be humble enough to say, Lord, you know me better than I know me. You know why a lot of folks don't get help from the Word of God? Because they think they know better than God knows about them. I I can't tell you how many times folks sit in services and think to themselves, well, boy, that's good. So-and-so needed it. Wish they were here. I'll tell you something funny. God knows who's going to be here and who won't be here. God knows who's going to be here and who won't be here. God doesn't... Listen, one thing I like about the Lord, He doesn't leave anybody's plate empty when He sets the table for us to eat. That don't mean that you're going to get everything that there is to be gotten out of every sermon that's preached. But I kind of believe if you come with your mind made up to listen, you'll get something out of every time that the table is spread. God knows. God knows better than we know. And so it works off this premise. The Lord says, I want the Edomites to understand that I am aware of their heart condition. And He's going to talk about some things that are going to take place in their life. These are the end results of what bitterness does. And I want us to notice this morning five things that bitterness robs us of. Look with me at the Word of God. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says this. God said to the Edomites, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Now, they thought they were big stuff. Did you know that, in fact, uh, one of the reasons that the Edomites was destroyed uh, when uh, the Nebuchadnezzar, uh, if I can get my head straight here, when the Nebuchadnezzar came through there, one of the reasons that he passed through that area was because of the trade route that the Edomites had control of. They had control of a trade route that was key to moving merchandise from the northern areas of the Mediterranean Sea and the the port cities of Tyre and Sidon and places like that all the way down around to the southern portion of that peninsula. It was key that you have that trade route. And the Edomites had control of it. And they thought to themselves, man, I'm big stuff. I mean, I've really... We have this trade route. We're in this impenetrable walled city. We're in this hideout up here. Nobody can get to us. And it caused them to be lifted up in pride. The Lord says, you may think you're big, but I've made you small among the heathen. You may think you're indispensable, is what God's saying. But nobody's indispensable. You may think they can't do without you, but they can do without you. He says, thou art greatly despised. Verse number 3, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the cleft of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Can I say, number one, that bitterness robs us of our soberness. And you say, soberness, preacher. Do you mean that bitterness makes us drunk? Well, no. The word sober has more meaning than just not drunk. What it means is this, bitterness warps our grip on reality. You know what they said to themselves? Nobody can touch us. 
Nobody can touch us. Can I put it a little bit different way? You know what, he, you know what they said? What happened to everybody else isn't going to happen to me. Can I tell you something that is absolutely vital to your bitterness? Something vital to your bitterness is this thought. I would never do what they have done. I'd never do that. It's not within me to behave the way they behaved. Can I remind you something, my friend? The only difference between you and the worst human being that's ever walked this earth is the sheer grace of God. You have the same dark capacity within you that has persecuted every righteous person that has ever lived. Listen to me. You have the same darkness and wickedness within you that every rapist and murderer and oppressor that has ever lived has within them. You look at people and say, Oh, look at what they did to me. Look at how that they did to me. Why would they do that? I'm not that way. I could never do something such as that. And maybe you can't, friend, but if you can't, it's only because of the grace of God. Only because of the grace of God. The only reason that the Edomites had an impenetrable city was because God had allowed it. And one of the things that is necessary for us to be bitter is we have to imagine we'd never do that. I'd never treat someone the way they treated me. I'd never say about someone what they said about me. I'd never go so far as to do what they did. But the truth is, you'd go that far and you'd go further if Christ wasn't your Savior. And if Jesus wasn't your Lord. So it robs us of our soberness. Makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says this. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? And do you notice that? If you got your Bible, look at verse number 5. You know what that is? That's a parenthetical statement. You say, how do you know that, preacher? It's real deep. You ready? It's in parentheses, right? It's a parent- You know what that means? That means God is giving this statement to Obadiah. And in the midst of it, he interjects this statement of woe and calamity. He was saying, if thieves came to thee, if robbers came to thee, oh, how art thou cut off? Let me say this, that what bitterness does to a person is awe-inspiring to an almighty God. What bitterness does to a person causes God to interject and say, oh, how terrible it is. He says, what would the robbers or thieves have done? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? Now, I, I told this illustration. I'll go ahead and tell you. I, I taught on some of this on Monday nights. And so I, I sort of, you know, I've got some illustrations. But, I, you know, how many of you watch cops? It's okay. I don't think you're carnal if you watch cops. That's all right. I watch cops sometimes. And uh, you'll watch cops and you'll see. I, there's nothing funnier than watching cops, right? And you'll see some guy, and, uh, you know, they'll get a call. There's somebody rummaging around in, in a house or something. And, and the cops, you know, man, they all show up, and, and they've got their, their flashlights and their guns drawn and everything. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the real deal, you know, and, uh, and a cameraman. And they've got everything. They're ready. And they show up, and, and they go around, and, and they get to the back of the house, and somebody's coming out a window, you know. And they're coming out and they've got a big old TV in their arms. And I love, man, let me tell you something, I love. The whole reason I watch cops is for that singular look that they get when they go. Like that right there. That's worth it. That's worth the whole. I mean, if it was nothing but somebody reading the phone book for 29 minutes and then that look, I'd still watch cops. Because it's worth it just for that, that look. And they, they've got their arms full of a TV or an air conditioner or whatever. And they'll say, I was borrowing it, you know. 
Because when I borrow stuff, I go in someone's house when they're not home, come out the window with it. But why aren't they carrying more off? They're not carrying more off because they can't carry more. They got their arms full. You see, a thief, usually he'll, he'll balance and weigh the risk against the reward. He'll say to himself, well, I could make three or four truckloads, but I'd probably get caught, so I'm just going to take what I can carry so I can get away. God says to the Edomites, if thieves had broke in on you, they would have stole till they had enough. Notice what he says, the next statement. He says, grape gatherers. If grape gatherers, look at verse number uh, 5, if grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? A person that is raising a vineyard or a vine, usually they want to leave something so that it will survive to the next year. But listen to what God says. Verse number 6. How are the hidden things of Esau searched out? Or how are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? Isn't that interesting language? Not sought out. It says sought out for the second time it says sought up. You know what that means? Dug up. How are his hidden things dug up? Let me say that first off, it causes you to lose your soberness. But secondly, it robs you of your substance. You know that bitterness has a funny way above any other sin of bringing us to absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. You could go all over in this nation and go in courthouses and see places where people, let's say, are going through an ugly divorce. And they're fighting each other tooth and nail. And they fight so long and so hard where there's nothing even left to fight over, money concerned. They spin it all up in lawyers. And at that point, they're just proving a point. Bitterness has a way of bringing us to absolutely nothing. Now, let me say this, that in some sins, they'll leave. They'll take only what they can carry. Some sins, when they bring fruit into your life, they'll leave a few grapes. But bitterness will bring you to absolutely nothing. It'll cause you to get to spend everything that you have. It'll cause you to give everything that you can. It'll cause you to go to you can't go any further. Listen to me, the only way to deal with bitterness is to dig it up and to dig it out. It wasn't just going to go away. Wouldn't you have thought it would just go away? Generations had passed, but it didn't go away. You know why? It wasn't about the blessing anymore. It was about the principle. If you study the history, everybody's been, you know, they made some program about it and opened a dinner theater, so now everybody's all studying up on Hatfields and McCoys and, and all that stuff. But if you study the history of that feud that took place there in Kentucky and West Virginia, did you know that that feud started allegedly over a pig? Over a pig? Several folks killed over a pig. You know why? It wasn't about a pig. It wasn't about a pig. Not anymore. Not when somebody's pride gets involved. It's not about a pig anymore. No, it's about a principle. And it just about destroyed that family, both of those families. Now they got all their money back because they've copyrighted Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> There's dinner theaters, but for a lot of years... The effects of it were felt for generations. We see that bitterness robs us of our substance. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says this, All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. 
There is none understanding in him. Now, this is interesting what God says. It. First off, notice the language that's used. They have brought thee to the border. Now, why does a whole nation come out to their border? It doesn't say to the east, doesn't say to the west, doesn't say to the north, doesn't say to the south. It merely says to the border. There's only one reason that an entire nation would go to its border on all directions, and that's if it's under attack. And so the Lord says this, that the men that have been part of your confederacy, the people you put your confidence in, are the ones that are assailing and assaulting you now. Those that ate bread with you have deceived you and laid a wound underneath you. Let me say that bitterness robs us of our security. Robs us. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, let me say this. The Edomites probably would have never made an alliance with the surrounding nations if it wasn't for their hatred of the Israelites. Once before, David had brought Edom into subjection under the nation of Israel and made them tributary. And after that happened, the Edomites said, never again. And they spent the rest of their history as a nation doing their best to ensure it didn't matter what happened. There was one constant, listen carefully, one constant in history during that period of time and that part of the world. The Assyrians rose and fell. The Egyptians rose and fell. The Babylonians rose and fell. Alliances were made and alliances were broken, but there was one constant, and that constant was this, that the Edomites hated the Israelites. And they'd do anything to see them destroyed. And they made these alliances with dangerous nations just to try to get back at Israel. Can I say this? That bitterness will cause you to have fellowship with people you have no business having fellowship with. You've heard this age-old adage, haven't you? That the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's a good way to make dangerous friends. Oftentimes, bitterness will drive us to do things we would never do otherwise and cause us to have alliances with people we would have never had otherwise. Just trying to prove a point. I can't tell you how many marriages have failed because a son or a daughter was trying to get back at mama or daddy. How many times that out of bitterness and out of anger, a child has fled into the arms of someone that they knew was not the will of God for them just because it would get back at their parents. It's happened untold amounts of times. Oftentimes, it will cause you to have communion and fellowship with people that are dangerous. Let me give you a fourth thing here. Look at verse number 8. This sort of goes hand in hand with it. God says this, Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? God says this, I'm going to judge Edom for their bitterness. And because I have purposed that that will be so, those that might advise uh, those in the nation to turn away from these confederacies, to turn away from these alliances, God says, I'm going to destroy their wisdom and I'm going to rob them of their understanding. That way they will make the decisions they're going to make. In other words, let me say that oftentimes bitterness robs us of our sins. Of our sins. See, the decisions that Edom made were foolish decisions. But it didn't matter because they were not motivated out of wisdom. They were motivated out of bitterness. People will do stuff to get back at someone that they'd never do otherwise. In fact, we have a turn of speech that we use for it. And it's this, cutting off your nose to spot your face. People that will hurl themselves into destructive situations just to get back at someone. 
People that will spend uh, life and limb and money and fortune and will bankrupt themselves just to try to prove a point. Well, your point may be proved, friend, but that doesn't mean you're the better for it. It doesn't mean you're the better for it. It robs us of our sins. And then finally, and I'm done, look at verse number 9. God says this, And thy mighty men, O Teman, Teman was one of their chief cities, Thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. God says that bitterness will rob you of your soberness and cause you to be lifted up in pride. It will rob you of your substance. And it will take everything that you have. It will rob you of your security and cause you to make decisions that are dangerous. It will rob you of your sense and cause you to do things that you otherwise never would have. But finally, we see that bitterness will rob you of your strength. God says this, I'm going to destroy the mighty men out of team. You know what that phrase means, don't you, mighty men? It doesn't just mean big guys or strong guys. It means warriors. God says this, I'm going to destroy those that would have protected Edom so that in the day of battle, they'll be weak. You know what bitterness really does? You know, there, there's all kinds of different types of fatigue. Did you know that? Different kinds of being, just being tired, tarred. Different kinds. Uh, I would say this, that being physically tired is probably the easiest fatigue to deal with. Uh, As a pastor, you have a lot of mental fatigue. And if your brain's as small as mine, you don't have a lot to exert anyway. I'll I'll say this, as someone that works with his mind a lot, you'd think it'd be better and sharper. It's not. I'd a lot rather dig a ditch than I would dig up a sermon. Because the difference is when you lay down after you've worked physically all day, you lay down and sleep. When you lay down after you've worked mentally all day, you lay down and you work, you think. But can I propose to you that there's also a fatigue of the soul and of the spiritual man? You know what bitterness does? It robs us of the strength that we have spiritually. Someone stays bitter long enough, you know what eventually happens? They just get, just get tired of trying, tired of serving, tired of praying, tired of reading, and they just give up. They just give up. It's interesting because I don't think the Lord is saying, I'm going to destroy your, your mighty men in battle. I think what the Lord's saying here is, I'm going to destroy your mighty men before the battle. Let me tell you something. We live in a day of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. We have an adversary. He's walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you're not careful, you'll use all your energy fighting that person that you're all knotted up and angry at. Not have any strength when that old lion comes roaming around. And the spiritual battle will be over. I don't mean you'll lose your salvation. I just mean you'll give up trying to fight, trying to serve the Lord. One thing that is sure to follow bitterness, usually, is folks get out of church and they quit reading their Bible and they quit praying. And they find excuses because if you want an excuse, the devil will give you an excuse. But at the end of the day, you know, you hear people say all the time, well, you know, I used to go to church, but then I got hurt. You know that 99% of the time, the person that made them mad usually isn't even going to that church anymore. But that's not what it's about. What the reality is, is they're so exhausted 
from this constant battle that's raging, this anger that's burning within them, that they've just give up and they're just tired of fighting any longer. Bitterness has a real danger and we need to understand that. It's not theoretical, friend. It has a real danger. There's folks, there's families out of church today because of bitterness. There's children, listen to me, children on their way to hell because their families got bitter and got out of church. There's homes destroyed, broken up because of bitterness. I'm saying this is real and we need to understand that. This isn't theoretical. This isn't just, oh, I'm working through my issues. I'm sure Esau thought to himself, well, who cares whether I stay mad at Jacob? What's the difference? It's my life. It's my heart. It's my emotions. I'll live the way I want to. Generations later, an entire nation is destroyed as the result of it. Wouldn't it be sad? Listen now. Most families can point to turning points in their family history. Do you know that? Most of you, if you go far enough back, you may have to go real far, you may not have to go far at all, but you go far enough back, you'll find if, if you grew up in an ungodly home, you go far enough back, you'll probably find a godly person in your home that allowed some things to cause their family to go ungodly. Oftentimes, if you're raised in a godly home like me, I was raised in a godly home, I don't have to go too far back and I start finding moonshiners and bootleggers and all kinds of off-oaks. Say, what happened, preacher? Someone made a choice. And it hinged on that choice. Esau made a choice. And that entire nation hinged on that choice. What would it mean if the Lord tarried in generations to come, someone was to look back and say, oh yeah, our great, 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 great granddaddy got mad, got out of church. Generations went by and out of church. Or maybe it could be told this way. Our great, great, great granddad, or great, great, great grandmama, whoever it might be. Yeah, they had a choice to make. But when faced with that choice, they allowed God to dig up and cast away their bitterness. And they went on and served God. And because of that, we rise up and call them blessed. Because the difference they made in our family. How you live has lasting effects. What will that effect be in your life? in your family's life.